0: This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello, I'm Nitin Singh, and I'm excited for a reunion today with podcast editor for the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, Dr. John Fleetham. And we're going to have our end of the year out of the blue discussion about the year 2019. And we're going to talk about some of the most interesting papers and discussions that came out of the blue journal and the out of the blue podcast. John, you're an expert in the field of sleep. And this year I've listened to you record several podcasts on different aspects of sleep disorder breathing. Like to ask you what your impressions are of some of the most interesting aspects of these discussions.
1: So yeah, uh, it's good to talk to you, Nitin. Uh, it's been a while. Yeah. Um, I selected three podcasts that I've done this year. Uh, one I moderated earlier on in the year. Um, is about a paper which discussed the importance of symptom subtypes in patients with obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, the patient, uh, the paper was from the Philadelphia and uh, Boston groups with Dr. Pack as the senior author. This podcast discussed the issue that uh, all patients with apparently the same disorder are not identical. Um, It's clear and similar to many other respiratory diseases that patients with obstructive sleep apnea do not always present with the same symptoms. In this paper uh, and previous studies of large databases, it it appears that patients with obstructive sleep apnea present with either daytime sleepiness or insomnia or recurrent awakening or or are relatively asymptomatic. The paper discussed in the podcast analyzed data from the Sleep um, Heart Health Study, which is a highly successful community-based study, which is examining the association between sleep apnea and cardiovascular outcomes over the last 20 years. This paper identified four symptom types. Uh, 38% were moderately sleepy, 17% were excessively sleepy, 12% had recurrent awakening, and 33% were minimally symptomatic. And what was most important was compared with the other symptom types, the excessively sleepy patients were at a more than threefold increase of developing heart failure and also more prone to develop coronary heart disease and incidental cardiovascular disease. So this paper concluded that obstructive sleep apnea symptom uh, subtypes, which have been shown previously are reproducible, and some of these subtypes, specifically the excessively daytime sleepy, are associated with increased cardiovascular risk. Hmm.
0: That's uh, that's quite interesting. So you know, obviously correlating that uh, that that, that cl- clinical symptomatology with cardiovascular outcomes that that could be very important and think you know uh, impact how we screen and, and work patients up. So do you think that that's um, going to change our practice, or do we need to, to get more information?
1: So, these results highlight the importance of considering different symptom subtypes uh, when designing future studies to assess the cardiovascular benefits of CPAP in patients with obstructive sleep apnea. Over the past three years, there have been several randomized trials uh, published which assess the impact of CPAP on cardiovascular outcomes. These studies have all shown that although there are many other benefits of CPAP for obstructive sleep apnea, The current data do not support treatment with the goal of preventing cardiovascular outcomes or improving survival. The problem with these trials is they all excluded the excessively sleepy patients uh, because based on this this podcast, this paper, these are the group with the highest risk in terms of developing cardiovascular disease. But you can't study these patients because of ethical concerns about not treating sleepy patients because of the risk in terms of car crashes and and other events. So the challenge now is to design CPAP trials in which we can include excessively sleepy patients um, and that they can be ethically randomized. Huh?
0: Now, I don't know if you mind me following up on that. So, how do you do that? Because it seems like that's where the the signal would be. That would those would be the patients that would make logical sense to treat. But as you said, you can't have a placebo group in those patients.
1: Well, you know, we've done some of these studies here in Vancouver, and, and they are difficult. But you know, um, if you have enhanced safety monitoring, uh, you may be able to do it. But but doing randomized trials in these patients because people so, feel so much better. Um, you know, especially the sleepy patients, it uh, feels so much better. Usually with CPAP, it's difficult to randomize them to long-term studies when they're not going to be treated. Uh, now, you um, did a, a podcast with uh, the Blue Journal deputy editor, Fernanda Man- Martinez, and associate editor, Leah Fabry, about the asthma issue, uh, which came out February 2019. What were the highlights of that discussion?
0: Well, that was actually a lot of fun. Uh, it was a—I uh, I lost control of the discussion a little bit. Dr. Fabri is actually very uh, entertaining in that podcast and had a lot of great insights as well as Dr. Martinez. Uh, I think you know the the, the asthma issue was the February fifteenth, two thousand nineteen, uh, Blue Journal, and I I would encourage our listeners if you have an interest in asthma to go look at that that issue because there was there were several interesting articles, and as Dr. Martinez pointed out um, that. You know, after some years of, of, of um, a lack of, of uh, quote unquote exciting research coming out of the asthma community there's really been a lot in the last few years, and that was what prompted um, having a special issue for asthma. Um, there were several papers we discussed and again there was many papers in in the issue, but I think it probably makes sense to talk a little bit about a couple of papers related to you know what we once called extrinsic versus intrinsic asthma, and now we're characterizing as T2 high and T2 low asthma. I think a lot of the work is related to trying to uh, disentangle heterogeneity and look at specific groups and understand them better and, and, and obviously target uh, therapy. So um, there was one paper by Peters and colleagues, and they were looking at sputum. They did a transcriptomic analysis they looked compared 84 patients with asthma and 27 uh, healthy control subjects. And they, they did this, you know, in network uh, gene analysis, and they found that the T2 low patients uh, had decreased expression of gene networks associated with CD8 T cells compared to healthy control, and that correlated inversely with both BMI, and they had measured uh, circulating interleukin six levels. So um, that, that wasn't, I, I think, so surprising. Um, but they also, their network analysis uh, also revealed, as they expected, a clustering of T2 high versus T2 low groups uh, based on the, the analysis of the, of the sputum transcriptome. But they also found a T2 ultra high cluster. And those were clinically older patients with asthma who had more severe airway obstruction. So that was an interesting finding. Um, it's not clear uh, the meaning of that and the, of that, but it certainly merits further study. Um, and then there was another uh, paper from the asthma issue that was interesting because it, it looked at an algorithm to predict long-term responsiveness to treatment. You know, we're in an era now of biologics, and they've been a huge advance in blocking branches of the T2 pathway. And so in this paper. Uh, Bateman and colleagues attempted to use a mathematical algorithm that that would identify patients with severe asthma and eosinophilia who were um, on reslizumab, uh, which is an IL-5 monoclonal antibody, uh, antibody against IL-5. And what they wanted to do is look at, after 16 weeks of therapy, be able to predict the one-year response so those patients continue to, to benefit long term and they the information they looked at at 16 weeks is lung function quality life and asthma control and so i think that, that was very appealing obviously these are expensive medications uh, and they required that um, uh, continued uh, uh, repeated uh, patient visits um, and so it would be very appealing to be able to identify the the, the non-responders uh, but unfortunately the algorithm identified only a small number of non-responders and the predictive power was uh, for non responses pretty low so i think it it doesn't seem like at least at this point the data from an algorithm alone would be adequate to predict long-term response and i think probably that may shift future study to looking at uh, some clinical variables as well as biomarkers
1: yeah, that was a very interesting issue and uh, and the, I enjoyed the podcast and certainly important for anybody dealing with patients with asthma.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I think it was a lot, you know, I don't see a lot of asthma day to day, but I think it's such an interesting time um, and there's a lot of good papers out there. So I, I learned a lot from that discussion. Um, and then I wanted to talk to you about what I listened to to this podcast you did about a, a trial of drug therapy for obstructive sleep apnea. And there were some uh, pretty surprising findings, uh, at least to me. So could you summarize that paper?
1: Yeah, this was a very interesting paper. It comes from the Boston group with Dr. Wellman as the senior author. Um, as the listeners know, uh, obstructive sleep apnea is very common. And the primary treatment at the moment is CPAP. Um, it's quite efficacious, but getting patients to commit to it on a long-term basis is a problem. So the holy grail in this field for, for many years is to be find a drug uh, for this condition, uh, but there's none available at the moment. Uh, there's been some animal work, a lot of it come out of Toronto from Richard Horner's lab, which shows that drugs with noradrenergic and anti muscarinic effects improve genioglossus muscle tone, and also increase upper airway patency. So this study was a two-night randomized placebo-controlled double-blind crossover trial, uh, and compared one night of 80 milligrams of metomimexetine and five milligrams of oxybutrin to placebo, uh, and just administered to 20 patients with obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, automoexetine is a norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor, and it's currently approved for the treatment of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Oxybutyrene is an anti-muscarinic, and it's currently approved for the treatment of overactive bladder. Uh, the primary outcome in this study was uh, just change in apnea hypopnea index, and genealitis uh, responsiveness was the secondary outcome. Uh, The drug combination uh, reduced the apnea hypopnea by 63%. So quite impressive. It went from a mean of 28 events an hour to seven events. And and the genioglossus responsiveness increased threefold uh, with the drug combination. Um, What they also did is they did an additional study of nine of the patients and they administered the the drugs separately. And, And it was interesting that uh, neither drug, when given separately, reduced the apnea hypopnea. So it, it, there's something specific about the drug combination.
0: Yeah, you know, I I was fascinated because when I you know I, when I was uh, reading the, the article and listening, I'm like you know so we have a an, uh, as you said uh, a medicine that treats uh, hyperactive bladder and one for ADHD. Uh, ADHD and this combination had very impressive, uh, impressive findings on the uh, on the HI, um, but but it's not clear how e- either one. Um, uh, separately it would. So obviously, it's a, a small number of patients, but uh, I guess, you know, that's it's a pretty impressive study. So uh, I, I guess, uh, I'm sure you know what the next steps are, or what's ongoing, or, or what do you think needs to be done? Um, well, it's it's of-
1: interesting and exciting, but it's very important for the listeners to know, this is just a proof of concept physiological trial. yeah, And it's way too premature to start treating patients uh, with obstructive sleep apnea with this drug combination. Clearly, larger and longer studies are needed to confirm the safety and efficacy of these medications. And and it's my understanding these studies are are taking place. I I think there's a study going on at the moment. Uh, They're looking at uh, up to 150 patients studied over 10 days with different drug doses. A couple of other caveats is, I mean, the only outcome with this was apnea hypopnea. Um, There was no similar improvement in sleep quality, but it's worth saying that the studies which they do in Boston, the, the patients are very heavily instrumented. And so that may have been part of the problem there. And also long-term, these two drugs have significant side effects. Uh, Atomoxetine is contraindicated in patients with severe cardiovascular disease. And oxybutyrin uh, can cause significant anticholinergic side effects. Um, uh, also in this study, uh, they only use one dose uh, of the drug combination. And um, so it's unclear whether a lower dose would have similar efficacy, fewer side effects and a higher safety profile. So it's early days, but uh, we were all excited because this is one of the first sort of human studies showing that there might be a drug uh, effective for the treatment of sleep apnea sometime in the future.
0: Yeah, it's, that was very interesting. And about, I think your, your last point is very well taken. Obviously um giving a drug that has cardiovascular effects and then giving it uh chronically uh to a group of patients who are at risk for cardiovascular problems obviously we, much more is needed uh um, th- even though those initial findings were exciting
1: now you did a podcast with our editor-in-chief bisha Vincicha, um in the conference uh, issue uh which came out in may what did you learn from that conversation
0: yeah you know so the I've I learned some of these things. Uh, we'll do a little inside baseball, uh, John, but you know, from, from doing some of these podcasts, so the the con- uh, the conference issue is a big deal. You know, the, the ATS international conferences every year in May. And so some really uh, interesting and exciting papers sometimes will be saved for the conference issue. Um, I think one of those papers uh, was a study by um, a critical care study by uh, Permcule and colleagues. So, you know, for those of us who care for patients in the icu we're uh, coming off of an era of early goal directed therapy which emphasized not only early antibiotics and septic shock but aggressive and early fluid resuscitation i think you know we've all seen the risk and the the, the side effects of of excessive fluid administration and so I think a lot of investigators are, are looking at that and and so these investigators conducted a phase two uh, randomized controlled trial of early low dose norepinephrine and septic shock and what was interesting is the way they designed the study they they randomized patients to early low dose norepinephrine Or a placebo infusion plus standard of care so whatever they were doing which included open label vasopressors because these patients were in shock and the study findings they they used a a composite uh, endpoint for the primary outcome uh, which was defined as control of shock at at six hours and the composites were your mean arterial pressure had to be greater than 65 um, plus either the urine output had to be more than uh, a half ml per kilo per hour, or there had to be a 10% decrease from the baseline lactate. And 76% of the people, uh, patients in the early norepi group uh, had control of shock by that composite endpoint at six hours compared to only 48% in the standard care group. And that was statistically significant. So I think there's there's some issues. Obviously, it's a it's a single center phase two trial. Um, there wasn't a difference in fluids, the amount of fluids administered. So that's a little puzzling. If you gave the early pressors, you should have been able to back off on fluids. But you know, there's certainly a growing evidence base now that we should be starting vasopressors earlier, and and this added to that. So you also talked
1: about an interesting study that looked at the effect of reducing lung. Low- hyperinflation on pulmonary microvascular blood flow and COPD. Uh, this is Visha's field. What did she think about that?
0: Yeah. You know, so I did ask her a lot about that. And Visha's is always um, uh, great to talk to. And she cautioned that she wasn't uh, an expert in cardiopulmonary interactions, even though she is obviously a world's expert in COPD treatments. Uh, and I think this is actually another interesting area. Um, and I see why she put it in the conference issue because, because, Finally, now, we're understanding that cardiopulmonary interactions, we're starting to better understand cardiopulmonary interactions in COPD. Um, And now investigators are studying the effects of lung hyperinflation on cardiac filling, and then what obviously that might mean for patients' exercise tolerance and physical activity, which we know is impaired in patients with COPD and hyperinflation. And so, there have been some recent studies measuring pulmonary microvascular blood flow. And we now know that it is reduced in COPD, but the paper by Vogel-Clausen and colleagues looked at the effect of reducing lung hyperinflation. And would that uh, improve Pulmonary microvascular blood flow as we're talking about heart-lung interaction. So they did an interesting study. They they perform functional lung MRI in 62 patients. And so they would either have a two-week course of a Laba-lama combination that's previously been shown to reduce hyperinflation, followed by two weeks of placebo and do imaging when they were either receiving the labalama combination or or placebo and vice versa, switching the the, the two weeks. Um, And then they they did the functional lung MRI to study uh, pulmonary microvascular blood flow. And it was very interesting. They found significant improvement in both total and regional pulmonary microvascular blood flow in response to the labilama combination compared to when uh, those patients were receiving placebo, and they also uh, at the same time found uh, uh, significantly improved regional lung ventilation with the labilama combination. So I think you know this is sort of the first description of that effect on reducing hyperinflation and improving pulmonary microvascular blood flow, and I think it's a, it's a very interesting time with some of these. Um, advanced imaging techniques that will see a better understanding of heart lung interactions and COPD in the years to come.
1: Yeah. It's great to have these techniques now. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, I used to, you know, we, so we can never see anything with the lungs, with MRI, but now the, these, these modern techniques, you can really, uh, you can, you can answer a lot of questions. If so you should think there were any clinical
1: sort of relevance in terms of these findings to, in terms of affecting
0: treatment yeah so i think i think that becomes the question and obviously that, that this was just looking at the imaging but it, are the groups of patients who you predict that um they would have uh, improved pulmonary microvascular blood flow they have, uh, and then they would benefit in terms of their exercise tolerance and physical activity. If you could identify those patients, you know, there's obviously many different combinations of in, inhaled treatments in, in, uh, in COPD. And would it be possible for a, a laba lama combination uh, to be uh, uh, useful in those patients? Again, they didn't, they studied this versus placebo. Um, and so you're not able to make those sort of determinations, but I think that, that that's some of the work uh, down the road. So, John, um, there have been a lot of great, uh, important ATS guidelines that are, that are obviously a lot of work for the investigators, and you've done podcasts, I think, on three of them this year. So uh, would you mind sharing with our listeners what you covered? Um, yeah. and tell us a little bit about that, those conferences. Yes,
1: I mean, the, the clinical guidelines are always highly cited, and they're popular as podcasts. So I've done three this year. Uh, the first was the evaluation and management of obesity hyperventilation syndrome. Uh, then there was a detailed one um, on the diagnosis and treatment of adults with community quad pneumonia. And, and I did one yesterday, actually, it, uh, it was the longest recording, went on for close to an hour. And oh, wow. It was on the new guidelines, um, the new combined guidelines from uh, ATS, ERS, uh, uh, CRC, and uh, also the uh, infectious disease group uh, on the treatment of drug-resistant tuberculosis. And then you've also done one. You've done one on the management of pleural effusions. I think. That's right.
0: That's right. Yeah, I think they've, they've been um, I, again, as you said, they're they're highly cited. You know, the the groups go through a painstaking process to really to to give. Um, uh, thoughtful recommendations that are evidence-based, um, and then the, I, I found your, your discussion of the obesity hypoventilation guidelines uh, to be an interesting one. I wonder if you could uh, you could share with the listener some of the details of of that the guideline and and the, and the talk surrounding the guideline.
1: Yeah, so the listeners know obesity hypoventilation syndrome. It's defined by a combination of obesity, usually a body mass index of greater than thirty. And then awake hypercapnia, a pCO2 greater than 45, after other causes of hyperventilation have been excluded. What was impressive to me about this guideline was the limited amount of data on which the, to base the recommendations. So uh, they came up with four recommendations, all based mainly on consensus and on a very low level of certainty in, in the evidence. So anybody looking to research a field, this uh, this uh, field is one. But open. Uh, the four recommendations uh, one was to use serum bicarbonate to exclude obesity hyperventilation when the suspicion is low. That's in patients with a body mass index um, between 30 and 40. And only use arterial blood gases if the suspicion is high, a body mass index greater than 40, or if bicarbonate is is less than 27. And it's interesting, I'm listened to the discussion. I talk about something that's changed my practice. I'm ordering much more bicarbonate than I always used to look at it, but mm. now I'm doing it on a routine basis with anybody with a body mass index over than 30. Mm. Um, the other three recommendations were CPAP, uh, rather than non-invasive ventilation, is the first-line treatment for stable patients with obstructive sleep apnea. So uh, go with CPAP, don't, don't go to high levels of ventilation. Um, uh you know, these patients are medical emergencies. So when they're hospitalized, uh, there were guidelines saying that anybody suspected with this should be discharged home on CPAP, and, and then ideally should be seen by a sleep disordered physician and undergo CPAP titration uh, sleep study within two or three weeks. And then the final recommendation is anybody with obesity hyperventilation needs to have a weight loss intervention, such as bariatric surgery. Uh, to help achieve a weight loss of 25 to 30% of the body weight. So, um, yeah, a few recommendations from this, uh, mainly based on consensus uh, with uh, a low level of certainty.
0: I'm not sure if you know the answer to this, John. I just want to follow that that sometimes we do see that obviously the hospitalized patients can be very sick. You know, there are chronic respiratory acidosis that can occur and then they have an acute component on that, um, ventilating them can be challenging. Um, I wonder, so you're saying that even in those who don't have a diagnosis yet, um, which I'm not sure what that percentage would be, but they would, there to be prescribed CPAP to go home with and, and, and follow up with a, a sleep specialist as soon as possible?
1: Yeah, that was, that was a, a definite recommendation. So the question the question posed is I mean, clearly you need to stabilize them in a hospital and everything like that. Then do you send them home on no treatment on treatment. And, and the very specific recommendation is you send them home on treatment. And then within a very short period of time, uh, maximum of a couple of months, they need to be seen, be studied in a stable situation um, to see how effective the, the positive airway pressure is. Very interesting. Now you, you've moved on. Um, you've got a new job now with ATS Journals, so you're no longer moderating out of the blue podcast. So we won't be able to do this uh, next year. Uh, tell us about this new endeavour.
0: Oh, well, well, thanks, John. But uh, yeah, well, uh, um, this will be our, my last one. So it's good to, to do this one with you. I've enjoyed these summaries uh, at the end of the year. And it's been nice to go back and li- sometimes you miss listening to some. So I'll go back and listen to, to some of, of yours and then what Trish has done in the past, Trish Critic. But yeah, um, so I'm uh, now going to be the, the editor in chief of ATS Scholar. And that's the new ATS Open Access Online uh, Education Journal. So uh, that will uh, that will require a fair amount of time outside of my day job. Um, as we build a journal, we reach out to people, uh, build a, You know the editorial board, which we're doing now, taking papers, reviewing submissions, and. Um, Trying to be very innovative since it's an online-only uh, journal in terms of the the types of submissions we take and trying to format papers so they are um, easy to read on your phone, on a computer, on, on your tablet. Um, but it's an education-based journal. But you know that'll be um, hopefully a broad enough scope. We are interested in in medical education. We're interested in education of all healthcare providers. We're interested in the training of scientists. Um, And we're interested in international differences. And obviously, there's a lot of also uh, issues related to the the culture and learning environment, things like physician wellness, implicit bias, gender issues. All these are highly relevant and important issues in uh, related to education that are, that are relevant to our pulmonary critical care sleep community. So um, I'm excited to start this. I'm looking forward to publishing some high-quality uh, content in, uh, starting in early 2020.
1: Okay, we, we look forward to seeing that journal. Thank you. Um, uh, but you're no longer moderating podcasts, but you're clearly still listening to them. Uh, and I think you listened to the podcast uh, that our new critical care podcast editor, Mike Lansford. Uh, did with Ed Palmer uh, about the effects of hyperoxia in the ICU patients. Uh, can you tell us about that uh, paper and podcast?
0: Yeah, it was, it, it was, I thought it was very interesting I, that they had, a, they had a great discussion and I encouraged the listeners to, to go back to it. You know, I think there's a, there's an emerging body of literature uh, post-cardiac arrest, mechanically ventilated patients were realizing um, the toxicity of, um, of oxygen and using higher oxygen saturation goals in many papers compared to lower um, have been associated with harm or no benefit. And so this was an an interesting paper by Dr. Palmer's team. They looked retrospectively at longitudinal exposure to hyperoxemia, which they defined as a, a PO2 over 100 and mortality in patients who were admitted to five UK ICUs over a period of five years from 2014 to the end of 2018 and they found an association um, between exposure to hyperoxemia and icu mortality and they looked at different exposure windows zero to three days uh, zero to one day zero to three days zero to five days and zero to seven days and they found uh, an association for each of those different exposure windows so Um, But there was some conflicting evidence there. They did not find a dose-response relationship between um, the hyperoxemia, how high the the PO2 went up, um, and and ICU mortality. And they did not find a differential effect between hyperoxemia and mechanical ventilation. Obviously, we worry about it a lot in our um, oxygen toxicity in our mechanically ventilated patients. So I think it's, it's adding to a, a growing body of literature that excessive oxygen therapy may be harmful, but the cause and effect are not clear from the study. Um, but I think, you know, it, it again, it, it, it gives us guidance to say, you know, when we're seeing these patients on a ventilator, are we making sure we titrate down the oxygen as best we can?
1: That's good. Well, look, I, I really enjoy doing these best of blue podcasts. I think this is our third Um, to the listener to read the articles we discussed in this podcast uh, please visit the podcast homepage at w.atsjournals.org to listen to more episodes of Out of the Blue visit our page on iTunes or Google Play and you can also stay updated whenever new episodes are available thanks for listening this is the last Out of the Blue podcast for 2019 Uh, Nitin and I both would like to wish you the compliments of the season I hope you will join us next year when we already have uh, three podcasts scheduled to be released in January.